Have you ever looked into charitable planning? Perhaps you've started the process, or maybe you're wondering if and when you should begin considering this. Dr. Russell James is a professor in the Department of Personal Financial Planning at Texas Tech University. He directs the on-campus and online graduate programs in charitable financial planning, planned giving. In this episode, Dr. James is gonna tell you what you need to know about charitable planning and the different options to choose from that will best fit your wishes. Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Show. Hello, Russell. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about your experience in charitable financial planning. Sure. After I graduated from law school, I worked as an estate planning attorney for many years. Uh, also worked in planned giving for a small residential college. Uh, so kind of had that combination of being on different sides of the table. Uh, then I uh, spent uh, several years as president of the uh, which was more focused on major gifts rather than uh, the uh, planned or estate gifts. Uh, along the way, picked up a PhD uh, where my uh, dissertation was on charitable giving. Uh, and so I've kind of looked at the economic aspects of those things. Uh, and for the last many years, I've just been a research professor, first at University of Georgia for a number of years. And now I've been in the uh, personal financial planning department here at Texas Tech University for over a decade now, just focused on teaching classes primarily in uh, charitable financial planning, both the law and tax aspects and also the decision-making aspects of uh, what causes people to uh, want to make these sorts of gifts. So that's a little bit about my background. And what are all the type of, uh, I guess, students that you have come through the classroom? <laughs> sure. So, you know, primarily our students, uh, they're grad students, uh, usually getting a master's in personal financial planning, occasionally uh, PhD students that I work with on research topics. Uh, and then uh, because uh, many of the classes that I teach are offered online, uh, we also have uh, practitioners, uh, both those who are working for large nonprofits uh, as uh, fundraisers dealing with uh, major gifts of assets or planned giving, uh, and also those who are uh, in financial planning practice uh, who want to uh, increase their, uh, their skills. So we tend to get those folks. They won't be on campus. They'll be uh, coming to us remotely. But of course, everybody's doing everything remotely these days, so uh, no surprise there. Now, is this just, uh, I guess, credit towards a certain degree that, that they're trying to get? Right. So they're, uh, so the degrees would be the uh, master's in uh, personal financial planning, the PhD in personal financial planning. Uh, and then for the online courses, there's kind of a half of a master's called a graduate certificate in charitable financial planning. Uh, and that is if you take the four course sequence of four graduate courses, you can pick that up along the way as well. Great. And one of the reasons I have you on is, you know, a lot of my listeners are investors. And I think as we age, you know, we uh, start to see more charitable giving, more donations, more impact, and trying to have more purpose around our life. And I think uh, a lot of the tools that are available out there, most people are not aware of. And so I kind of wanted you to break down some of those different tools that, you know, people can use along their journey in life. And does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Happy to do that. And so at what point does somebody look at, you know, charitable trusts? You know, is there certain net worth, certain ages? At what point do they need to start seeking out these planners? Yeah, well, certainly a couple of things can uh, drive this. Uh, one is it has to start with charitable interest, right? You've got to want to make a charitable impact because if if that's not on your radar, if you know you're really all about uh, just what I can uh, consume and uh, and what I'm going to leave behind to family, um, then you know these things aren't going to be of interest. One of the other things to keep in mind, though, is this. Let's start with the basics. The number one rule of charitable financial planning, and uh, this is kind of an obnoxious statement, is never give cash. Now, why I say that is that what we want to do in financial planning is we want to give appreciated assets 
not cash. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize they can do that. And in fact, look, if you've got, say, appreciated securities in a portfolio, you can actually on the same day give an old uh, set of shares of, say, Apple stock uh, to a charity and immediately purchase identical shares of Apple stock on that same day. You haven't changed your portfolio at all, but what you've done is you've wiped out all that capital gains tax. Uh, and so that's the idea that we start with. And as we get into these complex instruments, they're actually just going to be sort of variations on the theme in many cases where we always, as much as possible, want to give appreciated assets uh, and not just give cash. See, if we give an appreciated asset, we still get a tax deduction of the same size. Uh, and beyond that, avoiding those capital gains taxes, that's a tax benefit we can use even if the person is not itemizing. Uh, so it can be very powerful. So is there any certain, uh, I guess, value level at which appreciated assets that you know starts to make sense from a cost perspective to start if people want to give back or have that impact? Sure. So if we're just talking about making a direct donation, in other words, you know, I've got a charity I want to support. Should I give them cash? Should I give them shares of Apple stock? Um, there is almost no uh, minimum level. You always give the appreciated assets, especially if they're uh, publicly traded securities because you can immediately replace them. Uh, and if you're working with a charity that doesn't know how to accept gifts of stock, like, oh, the medallioning process, I don't know what that's all about, then you just set up a donor advised fund. I saw recently where Fidelity now has no minimums for setting up their donor advised fund. You ship that stock to your donor advised fund, sell it there, send the check out to to the charity. So if we're just making a direct gift, there's no minimum. Now, as we get into some of these other instruments, say, for example, a charitable remainder trust, well, we need to have an asset that, you know, usually we like to have a million plus asset, maybe a half million plus asset that's appreciated to do that kind of a transfer. And then if we look at what we'll talk about here in a moment, a, a charitable lead trust for estate tax planning purposes, well, obviously you got to be in an estate tax uh, scenario. And at this point, we're talking over $22, $23 million for a married couple uh, before you even care about estate taxes. All right. Well, let's kind of break it down at the high level. I think you mentioned three different things, right? You mentioned a donor advised fund, a charitable remainder trust, and charitable lead trust. So can we start with the donor advised fund and why someone would choose that mechanism? Yeah, absolutely. Donor advised funds are great because they give you lots of flexibility where, for example, you can push a bunch of money into the fund. Uh, maybe this is a good year for you to give. Maybe you're itemizing this year. Uh, and then in future years, then you can kick out uh, the uh, gifts as you uh, as you see fit. It's become super popular now that we've got such high uh, itemization uh, levels where, you know, standard deductions so high. So even if you're not itemizing, every year. You might pick target years and say, hey, this is the year I'm going to itemize. So, I'm going to push all this money into the donor advised fund, uh, take the big deduction this year. And then in future years, I won't have any deduction because I'm just going to be taking the standard deduction. They're also great because they're so easy to set up now. Uh, I think before there was like a $5,000 minimum. Uh, now, Fidelity says no minimum. Uh, and the nice thing is once you put those assets into the donor advised fund, you can keep managing those assets. If you've got an advisor, your advisor can keep managing those assets. You grow them in a tax-free environment, and then you send them out to charity uh, whenever you feel like it. Now, what are the caps on the deductions annually for those? Isn't there a percentage of income cap? Yeah. So, what we've got is uh, the cap is how much of your essentially adjusted gross income can you wipe out with charitable gifts. Now, typically, if you're making gifts of cash, we can go all the way up to 60% of income. Now, this year only, we've got an exception to that that allows you to wipe out 100% of your income with gifts of cash, but those can't go to a donor-advised fund. They've actually got to go to an operating public charity. If you want to get all the way up to 100%, uh, where the 60% uh, level that is, uh, we can use that with a, a donor advised fund uh, if we're doing gifts of cash. If it's gifts of appreciated property, uh, then we're usually looking at a 30% limit on how much of income can we wipe out with those gifts. 
And so let's kind of walk through a scenario. Maybe I have, let's say a hundred thousand dollars worth of Amazon stock, my cost basis, you know, whatever, five, six, seven years ago was maybe $10,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that process look like utilizing a DAF and kind of how do we get it set up and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So the process is this. We want to, you know, let's say we set it up. Maybe you're going to transfer $5,000 worth of it, however much you want to transfer. Once your DAF is set up, you can make those future transfers uh, pretty seamlessly. So you could do a 5,000 chunk, a 10,000 chunk. You could do, you know, uh, or if you say, no, this is the year I want to shift it all over. The idea, the, the concept is this. Whenever we would normally get ready to write a check to the charity. Instead, we use that cash to buy brand new shares and we kick out the old shares into the donor advised fund, have the fund sell it, and then uh, send the uh, cash to the organization. So we can really do that timing around when do we wanna make the gift, or we can do the timing around when do we wanna take the deduction. Uh, So for example, let's say you're doing a a Roth conversion, creates a massive spike in income. Well, that's a good time to try to get a big deduction. Uh, So we can put money into a, a donor advised fund, If it's a cash transfer, we can wipe out up to 60% of income. Uh, If it's appreciated property, we can wipe out up to 30% of income. And right now this year, if you're actually giving cash to a a charity directly, we can wipe out 100% of income. So if if you're in a situation where sometimes people make these uh, four or five-year pledges to their university, for example – if you've made that kind of pledge and you've got the financial flexibility, you could front load it, pay it all this year and wipe out 100% of income, which you could then combine with something like a Roth conversion uh, if, you, uh, if you're going to have a spike in income this year to wipe out that spike in income. So if I put my Apple stock of the $100,000 value today in $10,000 basis, if I contribute that all to the DAF today, I can take that $90,000. Is that correct? The difference between my basis and the value at the day was contributed and take that as a deduction on the tax return? So that so it's not a tax deduction, it's a tax avoidance. So what avoidance. you get is you get a hundred thousand dollar deduction for transferring the stock. But if you let's say you don't change your portfolio, you just kick those shares out into the donor advised fund, you use the cash that you were going to have given to the charity, and instead you use it to buy a hundred thousand dollars of brand new Apple stock, then what you've done is you've not only got that hundred thousand dollar deduction, but you've wiped out of capital gain from your portfolio. So you've gotten both the deduction and the tax avoidance uh, at the same time, which is why we like giving appreciated assets because we get that double tax benefit. Got it. So now that we have our, you know, Apple stock sitting in the DAF, right? Take, you know, what happens next? So what happens next is whatever we want to happen. We are now growing in a tax-free environment, but we will not be able to get any personal benefits off of this. Whatever it happens to it, uh, if it goes somewhere, it's got to go to a uh, typically to a public charity. Uh, so uh, some of the other instruments we look at, that actually there actually is benefit that can come back to the individual or go to their uh, children. Uh, this is not the case with the donor advised fund. Okay. So once I have the stock in there, uh, I guess the benefit of using the DAF and putting assets in there is that those assets can continue to appreciate or accumulate cash. Then you can use as donations to these charities instead of donating to charity once and being done. Is that the benefit there? Yeah, sure. And if you like to manage your own money, if you think you can, you know, do better than the charity, especially in a tax-free environment, then you could manage that over time and, you know, give as there is a compelling project that happens to come up uh, rather than, uh, um, you know, saying, oh, I have to give now or I have to leave everything in a taxable account. Um, you know, it, it uh, being able to manage in the meantime in a tax-free environment may allow you to hit uh, larger charitable goals than you'd be able to um, otherwise. And when it comes to those charitable goals, is that uh, does, is the person allowed to do any type of projects themselves, or where they can control or build out, uh, you know, a, a children's place or anything like that? 
So you can do what are called restricted gifts, meaning that you can work with the charity, uh, you can give for a specific project. You know, you could give, for example, say, I want to uh, give, uh, create an endowment that uh, is going to be permanent, is going to have my name on it. Naming rights are not a problem. They're not considered to be a personal benefit. Uh, and we can fund those things with the, with the donor advised fund. Uh, so it's really, that's a process of more thinking through what kind of an impact do I want to make in the world uh, with my uh, charitable uh, giving and uh, looking for projects that match that. Uh, and then you can have gifts come out of the donor advised fund to be restricted to that particular project that that particular uh, charity is, uh, is conducting. And so all donations that come out of the uh, DAF, they're supposed to all go to five other public charities or is there yes. any other ways you can do certain things? Uh, no. So that's the general idea. Now, right now, there's no rule on when they have to come out or if they have to come out, but they ultimately, uh, when they do come out, uh, they do go to um, what we would call operating public charities. So 501c3s. At arm's length, uh, arm's length, I guess you can't control that. <laughs> right. So, so again, the the big thing, which is different from these other instruments in some cases, is with a donor advised fund, there's no personal benefit that can come out of that. Okay. And so, what is the per, the donors control over their own DAF? How does that? What does that look like? If they open up a one with Fidelity, how does that instruction to them work? Right. So the technical reality is donors do not have legal control over that account. Um, however, the practical reality is uh, the uh, uh, organizations always follow the advice uh, as long as it's uh, a, a legitimate organization uh, of the uh, of the advisor uh, to the donor advised fund. Uh, so it's a little bit different than a private foundation. Private foundation, you know, that's going to be for a bigger gift, uh, actually going to control those assets. And you, in fact, you could hire family members to, you know, be employees of the private foundation. And you know, there are certain levels of private benefits that are allowed with a private foundation. You can fly your family in for board meetings or uh, to go investigate uh, a possible charitable grantee that just happens to be in Hawaii. Well, maybe not right now, <laughs> but, um, you know, so all of those sort of things are possible with the private foundation. We can't do any of those with the donor advised fun. Uh, there's no personal benefits that can come out of those. Um, so, uh, so, so that makes it uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit different, um, but we can recommend, Hey, invest in this, uh, send it out to this organization, leave it in. And the functional reality is the organizations do uh, follow uh, the uh, recommendations of uh, the people who are uh, advising where those funds should go, because if they ever quit, then people would quit using those uh, those organizations. So you need to pick a institution or a company that you have a lot of trust in. Yeah, absolutely. One that uh, fits with your uh, charitable values and goals for sure. That's good. And so is there anything that we're missing here when it comes to the DAF, to the benefits that one may receive in utilizing this mechanism? Yeah, no. So those are the basic ideas. Um, it's uh, it, it's a great tool if you've got financial flexibility uh, to think about your giving as oh, let's do it in chunks. Uh, we can shift the tax deduction forward. Well, you know, we've got financial flexibility. Put it all in there now, and we can use it to fund giving over the next several years. Uh, and so it's a, it's great, especially if you're trying to manage things like if you're not itemizing every year, for example. And what happens when the donor passes away? So typically with donor advised funds, they allow you to set up a successor advisee. Uh, and so you can say, this is the person who's going to advise, um, you know, once something happens to me. Uh, and that's typically part of the documents that when you sign up the, just like any other financial account where you would set up a transfer on death designation, uh, you can set up a successor uh, person to advise the account. Is there any, you know, publicly known, I guess, case studies that you could kind of give us one or two to give people an idea of some bigger DAFs that are out there that have been used to fund certain projects? 
Yeah, you know, so there's a combination. Um, so obviously, the biggest ones are your financial institution. Uh, so your, you know, Fidelity, Schwab, Charitable, uh, and uh, these are they've got lots and lots and lots of accounts. Then you also have um, DAFs that are really focused on just weird assets, right? We're talking partial interest in a racehorse or un crops or in one case, uh, an elephant ride business in India that needed to be held for two years before it was sold, right? There are uh, DAFs that um, uh, that are set up to, to deal with those sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, these are the more specialized ones. Uh, Charitable Solutions has some uh, with uh, and, you know, other organizations that, that do that. And then, of course, the original DAFs are still around, which are the uh, community foundations. Uh, community foundations, uh, our uh, local groups uh, focused on uh, benefiting the local community, um, and they've been offering DAFs for uh, over a century. So uh, uh, they, they're still around doing those things as well. And these companies, they typically just take a, a management fee or annual yes. fee, or how's yes. that structured? Yeah, exactly. So it's just like uh, uh, any other type of a, um, a financial management situation. They're um, they're taking a annual management fee, and of course, just like any other account, they'll give you the rates on that and what they're charging at uh, at different levels of uh, uh, sizes of the DAF. All right, that's great. And then we were, I think, we also were mentioning charitable lead trusts and remainder trusts. Can we go into detail on one of those? Yeah, sure. So uh, I've got to start with the charitable lead trust just because. The, the usefulness of these is based entirely upon the current interest rates, okay? The reality is right now, the official interest rate that we use to calculate these things um, is uh, the lowest ever in history by a massive amount. Um, so, right now, we're looking at a 0.4% um, uh, interest rate. Uh, so, this is uh, lowest in history, uh, and it leads to some crazy opportunities because of that low interest rate. So let me start with the charitable lead trust. There's two different animals. Unfortunately, they're both called charitable lead trust, but one of them is for estate tax planning and one of them is for income tax planning. And uh, they're, they're completely different animals, but we call them the same thing. Let's start with the estate tax planning uh, uh, charitable lead trust. This is technically known as the non-grantor charitable lead trust. Okay, The way it works is this. You've got somebody who's charitable. They make regular gifts. So, all they're doing is they're taking an asset, they're sticking it into this trust basket, and that trust basket is going to make those gifts for them to the charity over the next, say, 10 or 20 years. Okay, then whatever's left at the end uh, goes out to the heirs, goes out to the family members. Okay, so that's the basic setup. So, you say, okay, that's fine, but why would I do that? Here's why you do it. When you take that asset and you put it into the trust basket, you immediately pay gift taxes on the projected amount that will be left over for the kids at the end of those 20 years. You pay nothing on what's actually left over at the end of the 10 or 20 years or however long you want to set it up. And of course, I say kids, you can pick anybody you mm -hmm. want as your beneficiary. Now, here's the magic reality that we live in today. This growth rate that you pay gift taxes on assumes that for the entire life of that trust, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, it's going to grow at today's Section 7520 interest rate. So, what that means is you are setting assets into a trust and any growth that you get above 0.4% for the next 10, 20, 30 years, all of that growth goes to the heirs 100% estate and gift tax free. So, you can see why it's such a powerful opportunity right now. L let me give you a quick example. Let's suppose you've got somebody who's wealthy and they're comfortable with, uh, uh, let's say, taking a $10 million asset, setting it into one of these trust baskets. And they're committing that over the next 20 years, um, they're going to, that, that trust basket is going to make, say, $520,000 worth of charitable gifts every year. Okay. What is the projected value that's going to be left over at the end of the 20 years? Answer is $0. 
What do you pay in gift taxes for transferring that $10 million into that trust basket? Zero dollars. Now, suppose those assets don't grow at 0.4%, but they grow at, say, 8%. What's going to be left over at the end of that time period? Almost $30 million. That all transfers completely estate tax free, uh, you know, at the end of that 20 year, 22 year period, uh, comes out to be about $28 million. So you can see where if you're earning 8%, but the IRS says, well, we can treat it as if you're only going to earn 0.4%, all of that extra growth goes to the kids tax free. And we typically do set it up. This is technically called a zeroed out CLAT, where we uh, we set it up. So the expectation is officially we're projecting nothing will be left over for the heirs. So we pay no gift taxes up front. But any growth that we have above that level, that goes to the kids tax free. It's kind of like a no cost uh, shot at an opportunity to transfer tax free assets to the heirs. As long as the person already charitable and they're already planning to make these charitable gifts, uh, then it's uh, it's a great opportunity to take advantage of, especially right now with the rates so low. So that's one kind of charitable lead trust. And then, so the amount above what is going to the charity during that period and above that interest rate, how is that taxed during those annual periods? So that trust is actually its own tax paying entity. Uh, so, so it has, uh, which is why we do larger transactions for it. So it pays its own income taxes, but it's also allowed to make its own deductions. So for example, let's say that that $10 million, uh, let's say for whatever reason, you actually had to declare uh, $500,000 worth of income uh, off of your uh, earnings that year. Well, that $500,000 gift that you're making to charity, it comes, it comes as a direct deduction off of that earned income. So you can actually uh, wipe out 100% of the income that's earned off of those assets uh, through the uh, deductions that are made by the trust itself. In fact, sometimes we'll do this rarely, but sometimes we'll do this purely for income tax planning purposes. If you've got somebody who can't use charitable deductions, typically, typically because they've donated so much in the past out of their wealth and they have so relatively little income that they're capped out because of, say, the 30% or 50% limits, well, we can take that asset uh, that kicks off income, stick it into this charitable lead trust. It'll still kick off income, but we can now use those deductions from those transfers out of the charitable lead trust to offset that income uh, within it as its own uh, tax-paying entity. So, I know it gets a little complicated there, but that, that is uh, that is how it works in the meantime with these estate tax uh, charitable lead trusts. Uh, not with the income tax version, but with the state tax version, that's how it works. All right. And so is there a certain magic number of years these typically go on for or a certain formula that someone chooses the amount of years that an asset's placed in there? You know, it's really has to do with their planning strategies. Uh, and I'll tell you what, what's often very popular is to put these, uh, you can do them during life, as I've just described, but you can also stick them in an estate plan. So the idea is, hey, I want to leave some of my money to charity, want to leave some of it to the kids. Well, if you're going to leave money to charity, why not stick an asset into that charitable lead trust, have it zeroed out. If you don't beat the 75-20 rate, then fine, you've made your charitable gift, no harm, no foul. But but if you do beat that rate, then the kids get the uh, uh, inheritance. Uh, they get all of that transfer, sort of that extra growth comes to them estate tax free. Now, I got to tell you, psychologically, this is a very powerful estate planning strategy because it gives the kids more than one shot at their inheritance. In other words, instead of just immediately giving them a big sack of cash, um, which often leads to really bad investment decisions, you give them a chance at their inheritance, maybe some right at that point, but then some five years later, some 10 years later, some 15, some 10. So you can actually ladder these charitable lead trusts to pay out at different points uh, so that the, uh, you know, so that the kids can mess up and, and not, and, and, and not uh, be without another chance at it. Uh, look, 
people do stupid stuff with inheritance. And part of the reason why is psychologically, when you get a sack of money and I tell you, here's your mom death money, what do you want to do with your mom death money? And with all the emotions that are tied to that, a lot of people respond to that with, I don't, I, I, it's, I, I, I want it gone. And so they do lots of inappropriate things because they're holding a sack of money that in their mind is the mom death money. Um, and so that gets them to oftentimes, you know, typically inheritances last about 18 months before people return to their uh, original uh, net worth. Um, so it's actually better if you can give kids the opportunity. I say kids, you know, typically people are inheriting when they're in their 60s, but you know what I mean? Uh, if you can give heirs the opportunity uh, to um, have that, uh, that more than one shot at an inheritance. No, I agree. I definitely think that uh, that stepped approach is much better, especially if you have younger kids, right? Because a lot of people that do come into money, sometimes they got to screw it up first or a couple of times before they start to learn a lesson. That's just, that's just people in general in life, right? We all, start, we all seem to learn by some kind of pain, right? Sure. And so uh, I guess going into... The uh, we're in the non-grantor uh, CLT, right? Uh, so on the initial year that you're doing that contribution to the, the, the charitable trust, we'll call it this $10 million asset, right? Mm -hmm. So that's going to go, that $10 million is going to go against your estate. Is that correct? At, in that initial year? Right. So the idea is that you are um, transferring this out of your estate. Uh, so that cash is now gone. Um, so this is a, a non-grantor trust, meaning that you're not you're not holding it anymore. You've set up the rules for it, but you've you've sent it into this trust basket. So it takes that asset immediately out of uh, out of your estate. Uh, and even if that asset grows and grows and grows, it's not part of your estate. And so what I guess what I'm saying is that, that goes against your lifetime uh, estate value, right? Is that what I'm yeah, Yes. So, uh, for example, uh, that $10 million, it's no longer in your estate. So if you died, it would not count against your um, uh, against the estate tax exemption, for example. Okay. All right. That's great. And so I guess we have the other aspect of the charitable lead trust, right? And that would be the grantor. Right. So now this is a completely different animal. Uh, it is for income tax planning purposes. Okay. So this is a smaller dollar. Um, these are going to be uh, more affordable uh, kind of instruments uh, and smaller dollar transfers. The purpose of this is we set the asset aside. And again, just like the other version, it pays out for say 10 or 20 years to charity, but at the end, it comes back to the donor. Now, because it comes back to the donor, um, what happens is the donor can right now today immediate income tax deduction for all 20 years of that giving that is going to take place. So the cool thing is the size of that deduction for the next 20 years of giving that's going to be able to take place, it is determined by the Section 7520 interest rate. In a low interest rate environment, that deduction is much, much larger. So at this point, you're getting almost the full value for all 20 years worth of giving, uh, and you can take that deduction right now today. Now, you may ask, well, why don't I just stick it into a donor advised fund, get the full deduction up front? Absolutely. But you don't get the asset back in that case. Once mm -hmm. it's in the donor advised fund, you can never take any benefit from it uh, again. But when we do a uh, grantor trust, we still control that asset and we get that asset back at the end. Is there any uh, mechanisms that utilize the DAF and the CLT together or are they just two separate Yes. So you certainly could set it up where you say, hey, I'm going to have my charitable lead trust. And for the next 20 years, it's going to pay this amount out. And the charity that I choose to pay it out to is my donor advised fund. So no problem with doing that. Um, good strategy where you've got that. And then ultimately, you still control the, that, uh, that money uh, as it goes out into the donor advised fund, which you can continue to advise. And so what other benefits to the uh, grantor trust do you see? 
So, you know, um, it's it's really, again, it's, a, it's an income tax planning uh, strategy. Uh, it is a way to pull forward uh, the uh, deductions. And really, one of the things when this becomes valuable is whenever we've got a spike in income, if we've got some event that causes us to pull income forward. Roth conversion or a big bonus or whatever, and we want to pull that deduction forward. It's another strategy that allows us to do that. The only difference is we can do it when we're putting in there an asset that we want to get back later, which with the donor advised fund, once you put it in, it's gone. Got it. And so if you put that $10 million asset into this grantor trust, um, when you get it back out after that 20 year period, are you still getting it back out at that same basis you went in with it? Does it always maintain the same cost basis or the appraised value or how does that work? Yeah. So actually for income tax planning purposes, you've never given it up. You've owned it the whole time. Nothing changes about it. You, it's, it's almost like putting it into just like a living trust, right? I've retitled it, but I control the trust. So the same way here where that asset is essentially still yours all the way through that 20 year period. Period. This uh, ta- this income tax planning lead trust. It's not its own tax paying entity. It's not a separate entity. It's just you. So if it earns income, you earn income. If uh, you know whatever your basis is, that doesn't change. You still own it. You've just retitled it temporarily in this in the name of this. And you know uh, the of course the whole point of it is you get the the income tax deduction for those gifts that are made over the next twenty years. You just get to take that deduction all right now this year. So you get to, so essentially if someone utilizes the uh, charitable trust with the charitable lead trust with the DAF, they can get that big upfront deduction for those 20 years, correct? Yes. Re- reduce their tax rate, reduce their tax burden or tax expenses for the year. And then utilize that income every year and from that to go to their DAF and then provide that to charity. Yeah. You can certainly set it up to, to do all those things. Um, so, uh, so yeah, th- those are some of the strategies. And, you know, the nice thing is there's different groups like iClat.net that do these things like high volume, really affordably. Uh, so it's not like the estate tax planning version where we're going to be making massive transfers. This is estate tax avoidance. This income tax version, uh, we can do it really cheap and it doesn't have to be with a, with a, a big size transfer. So, you know, easily we could do um, a $50,000, $100,000 transfer into that, which we would not do for an estate tax planning um, uh, charitable lead trust. In iCloud, they just provide a kind of boiler template process that's cost effective for most people. Right. Is that right? Yeah, high, high volume and uh, a great way to do it for these that, that allows you to do it at you know at a smaller transaction size. All right, that's good. And so I guess we're left with the charitable remainder trust, correct? Right, sure. So charitable remainder trust, always very powerful. Um, not necessarily more powerful because of the interest rates, the, the deduction doesn't necessarily change there, but here's why it's so powerful. Let's say you've got a massively appreciated asset, but you want to sell it because it's not kicking off enough income. You're ready to say retire, whatever. Let's sell this highly appreciated asset uh, so that I can convert it to income. Well, what happens when we do that? Well, you know, you can get whacked with that capital gain tax. And so now that million dollar asset uh, or say that $10 million asset, now it becomes like a $7 million asset. Or if you're in California, it's even worse, right? Uh, and so all of a sudden, at the moment that you change that, yeah, you're try- you're, you can earn income off of it, but you're not earning income off of the 10 million. You're earning income off of the seven or the six million. Really hard when that happens. Well, charitable lead trust, here's the great thing. You take that asset, you put it into this charitable entity called the charitable remainder trust, excuse me, the charitable remainder trust sells it, no upfront capital gains tax. So that $10 million asset is still a $10 million asset. And you can take payments off of that for the rest of your life or multiple lives, however you want to set up. You could do it for a period of years if you want to set it up that way instead or some combination of those. Uh, those. But the idea is that as this, uh, let, let's say these investments grow, your payments also grow. So say, for example, you might pick and say, I want 5% of the value of what's in that trust every year. 
Okay, you can do that. So you grow the value of that and your 5% uh, also grows. So it essentially, it works like an IRA. There's no taxation of what happens inside the trust. You're only taxed on what you pull out. When you pull that uh, money out of it, then that can be subject to tax. But everything that takes place in there, it's just growing uh, interest on interest tax-free uh, all the way through. So very, very powerful strategy if you have a large, highly appreciated asset asset um, that you can earn a lot more uh, lifetime income. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, the heirs can wind up better off for it. Now, ultimately, after the person passes away or the period of years expires, whatever's left over goes to charity, right? But because you're earning so much more income, plus you've got a big tax deduction on top of that, if you take some of that value and buy life insurance with it, then the heirs can end up with uh, their benefit. In fact, they can end up with it estate tax-free if you run it through an irrevocable life insurance trust, uh, and the charity gets its benefit, uh, and you've essentially funded all of this with tax avoidance. Well, that was, that was a lot there. <laughs> that was good though. That was good. And so let's just, I'll just step back. So, so with the charitable remainder trust, when we donate the $10 million asset up front, we get a $10 million deduction right away. Is that? No. So you don't, you don't get a deduction for the full $10 million okay. because you're going to be taking part of that back. Uh, and so you get a deduction for the difference between what you're projected to take back and what, and what's going to be left over for the charity uh, at the end. So essentially your deduction is going to be somewhere between say 10 and 30 percent of the uh, of the value of that transfer okay and then on an annual basis what, is there a minimum percentage or a maximum percentage that is required to withdraw yeah there is you have to withdraw at least five percent of the value of the trust each year um, could be all the way up to 50 percent you know in which case it's not gonna last very long but uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah five percent unless you just picked an asset that's magic and it's going up way more right <laughs> that's right that's right and so uh, on that, when that tax, when you're getting that annual withdrawal, uh, is that tax that 5% or whatever, is that tax at the trust rate or is that tax at the typical income tax rates, whether that's, uh, you know, a rental income or whatever that may be? Right. Source. So it, it's, it's, it's a bit like an IRA. When you pull the money out, uh, the way it works is it has the same tax characteristics that it had in the trust. So the way it works is if there is ordinary income in the trust, when you pull the money out, it's going to be treated as ordinary income. If there's no ordinary income in the trust, and you put, and, but let's say there's capital gain, then you pull it out, it's going to be treated as capital gain. And so it sort of starts at, it's a tiered system, uh, kind of the worst comes out first. So yeah. uh, ordinary income, uh, any of that, you're going to uh, pay taxes on that first, uh, and then capital gain tax after that, and then um, return of initial investment after that. Okay. And then after the period of time that you guys allot up from, which could be yourself or multiple generations, and why, and how do you kind of make a decision on that? So the decision really comes down to you've got to have at least 10% of the present values projected to go to charity at the end. Uh, and so that's what prevents you from saying, you know, hey, this is going to last for 12 lives um, because, okay, those numbers don't really work out. Uh, and so you do have to have, and since you can't take less than 5%, um, that's often why these are going to be restricted to people who are a bit older. So we're looking at people kind of their 60s plus um, uh, to, to use these kinds of instruments if we want to do it for a lifetime rather than for a fixed number of years, which is a typical way these are, uh, these are set up uh, because ultimately we've got to project a 10% present value for the amount that's going to be left over to charity at the end. And again, that charity at the end could be a donor advised fund. That's what, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> Can that go to your, yours or one of your family members, donor advised funds? And I guess you're saying yes, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so you provide more clarity around how someone can utilize that life insurance to, uh, you know, uh, I guess kind of justify also maybe their donation and still being able to leave something beyond for their heirs. 
Yeah, sure. So again, everything starts with somebody who has an interest in making a charitable impact, right? We don't really want to get into charitable planning instruments for somebody that doesn't care about charity. But once we're in that space, somebody says, yeah, I want to leave something to this cause that's been important in my life, uh, in my estate plan. Uh, Well, then great. So if we leave that gift to the organization through this charitable remainder trust, uh, then we get all of these sort of magical tax benefits on top. So we can take that appreciated asset, stick it into the trust, sell it with no capital gains taxes, which means we're going to be, if you know, if we're taking out five or six or however, whatever percent we, we choose, we're going to be taking that from the full amount. It's not reduced by taxation. And beyond that, let's say you have a big year and you, a big amount of growth, right? And uh, let's say your, your investments go way up and you sell them right? Well, guess what? There's no upfront taxes on that. Just like in an IRA, it's all sort of tax protected. So, it's tax protected all the way along the way. You're only taxed on what you pull out. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and, be, and because of that, you're getting way more income than you would if you just sold it and then you invested it in a taxable account. So, the idea is, oh, I'm getting so much more income. What can I do with that extra income? Well, we know that at the end of the life or lives, uh, that's going to go to the charitable cause. Okay. So, it's not going to go to the heirs. Well, we could choose to take some of that extra income because we're earning so much more because we've avoided all of these taxes, both at the uh, at the beginning and as we earn throughout. Uh, we can take that higher level of income that we're getting use it to buy some life insurance along the way. Uh, we do get an upfront tax deduction worth at least 10% of the value because it's based upon the present value of what we project to go to charity uh, of the initial transfer. We can use some of that value. We can use the higher amount of income and we can say, let's use some of that bonus and we'll buy life insurance. Uh, and so, then that ends up where the uh, heirs can, uh, can be happy about the charitable planning as well as the charity. So, do you think that's kind of just a win for all parties when it's structured like that? Yeah, you know, and in fact, there was a great uh, paper by a finance professor at University of West Georgia where he ran uh, like 3 million Monte Carlo analysis. And his question was this. He said, with all of these tax benefits stacked together, right, is it actually better if you have no charitable interest? Is it actually better if you've got an appreciated asset? And I think he used something with a 20% basis that you use a charitable remainder trust rather than just selling it and and investing it in a taxable account. And the bottom line answer was uh, uh, most of the time, actually by a really wide margin, it was better to use the charitable remainder trust because the the, the tax benefits are just, they sort of stack on each other. Uh, Now, one extra benefit that makes this very powerful that we don't actually talk about in the math calculations, but it's this. The benefit that you get depends upon how long you live. The IRS lets you calculate your life expectancy based upon the average person's life expectancy. Well, here's the thing. People have set up a charitable remainder trust. They live way longer than the (laughs) average person. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, sick people don't buy annuities, right? If you know you've got a negative diagnosis, you're not going to set one of these things up to pay you for life, right? Uh, So, it knocks those people out. Number two, Wealthy people live longer than people who are not wealthy. There's a couple of reasons for that. It's hard to build wealth if you have major health problems and if you have access to, you know, the best places to live, the best medical, all that, then that's also part of it. And then finally, we find that people with a charitable component in their estate plan or those who give currently to charity, they live longer than others of their same wealth category. So, you put all these things together and one study found that if you took a 65-year-old female and you compared what a 65-year-old female charitable remainder trust creator's actual life expectancy is with the IRS tables, that actual trust creator is going to live on average 10 and a half years longer. So, it's another benefit where um, we actually get way more benefit out of this trust than uh, we have to calculate uh, in terms of uh, the tax rules. But it ends up being uh, uh, quite the opportunity, especially for folks that have appreciated assets and if they want to make a charitable impact in their estate plan as well. 
I mean, I kind of jokingly said over the years that I, I keep I keep life insurance on me because I feel like I have a better chance of living longer. <laughs> right. It's like the, everything works in opposite effect. If you got all the insurance, you typically don't need it. Right. Is that kind of what you're implying that those that set up the trust tend to not need it so much and therefore they're, they're taking better care of themselves and, you know, they're living longer? Well, sure. And it's the same idea in the insurance industry. We don't use life insurance tables for annuity purchasers, right? There's a separate life table for annuity purchasers. Okay. This is an annuity that you are buying a charitable remainder, you know, unit trust or annuity trust. Well, why is it that annuity purchasers live longer? Well, because they're making a bet on their own life, right? Uh, sick people don't buy annuities. Uh, annuity purchasers live longer, whether it's charitable or, or, or non-charitable. Um, whereas, you know, life insurance purchasers, well, you know, we, that's why we, we've got to do all this underwriting. We've got to do all the because we know people will want to game the system um, <laughs> and, uh, and say, oh, this is a good bet now because I don't have that much time left. Uh, whereas purchasers, you know, we're expecting, they're expecting to live longer and they do. Well, that was good. I mean, that was a lot of, you know, information. I think we definitely covered all the topics pretty well. Is there anything that you could think of that we haven't hit on these three, uh, you know, between the DAF and the charitable remainder and charitable lead trust? Nope. I think we covered a lot of territory. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to share this in sort of a fire hose fashion. Thank you. And so what is the, uh, as our final question, you know, what is the biggest thing you've seen in your research that has allowed people to increase their net worth? Yeah, certainly. And this is where a lot of people misunderstand the concept of how wealth works. Okay. Real simple idea here. Wealth comes from owning assets that go up in value. Now, you ask general public when they when you say what is wealth, they'll get they'll give you examples of people with high, with big paychecks. Well, guess what? Those people with big paychecks, unless they are using those paychecks to accumulate assets that go up in value, they're not going to be they're not going to build wealth. They're not going to be wealthy. Um, you know, they're going to be like your typical NFL player. And eighteen months after, their net worth is going to go to zero. Um, that's not how wealth is built. Wealth is not built from high paychecks. Wealth is built by acquiring assets that go up in value. And if you can do that with leverage, obviously you can uh, do that much faster. But that's what accumulating wealth is all about. It's about acquiring assets that go up in value. As we're approaching the end of 2020 and in the news, the Fed, you know, comes out and speak, they want to see inflation, right? And so, Therefore, they're basically telling you, you need to own assets because the values are going to go up, correct? <laughs> so it's, it's, as far as I know, there's no other way to build wealth other than owning assets that go up in value. If you're an entrepreneur, you force that asset to go up in value. If you're, uh, uh, if you're Buffett, you, you pick the right asset that's going to go up in value. You can do it the different ways, but you've got to do something where you are owning an asset that goes up in value. I appreciate that. And so if people want to get a hold of you, Russell, what is the best way they can reach out to you? Best way to reach out to me is on LinkedIn. If you connect with me, if you're interested in charitable financial planning, I'll send you links to all of my, uh, I've got free YouTube videos uh, on uh, online, all of my uh, presentations, my academic papers, all that sort of thing. I'll send you links to all that stuff for free. Uh, so that's the best way to get in contact with me. Well, I greatly appreciate all the wealth of knowledge that you shared with us today. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, buddy. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and review. See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Robert